0: I want us to look this morning at 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, and uh, life's most liberating truth. If I could tell you one thing that would change the way you think about your life and about sin and about your heavenly Father, it would be these verses today if I could say to you that if you grasp this and if you embrace it and if you allow it to work in you and through you it will change your life you see if we learn it and not just learn it but if we learn it and live it it'll be evident it'll be evident to us it'll be evident to those around us that we have embraced a truth of Scripture that is life-changing. If you live it and if you learn it and teach it to your children, then it will liberate them. It will give them ammunition on how to live when they are under the attack of the enemy or their own flesh or the world. It will give them hope that God hears and God sees and God knows, First John chapter two and verse one, "My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation. For our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world now John has been talking to us in 1st John chapter 1 about sin and not lying to ourselves and saying we have no sin and he talks to us about walking in the light which simply means that we let the light of God shine in our hearts and on our lives to show us where we're off track, where we've missed the boat, where we've missed what God was trying to do in our lives. And so John writes these words and it's an illustration that the world would have known. It's about being without hypocrisy. It's about having integrity. Sculptors in that time would, would sculpt an image but if they cracked it, they would fill it with wax. They would fill the the crack with wax and try to sell it in the marketplace. And it was such a good job of filling the crack that you didn't know there was a crack there until you held it up into the light. And when you held it in the light, you could see where the crack was in the sculptor and that it was flawed. What God does is he puts us in his light. To show us where the flaws are, to show us where the sin is, to show us the problem that is keeping us from walking in fellowship with him. And when the Bible says God is light, in him there is no darkness, it means you can't hide in his light. It reveals, it exposes. Now verse 2 has a purpose clause in it. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. This is a crucial verse to understand the atoning work and the power of the cross in your life and in my life. You see, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is our attitude about sin. Look Look in your notes. Bud Robinson said, when God saved me, he didn't fix me up so I couldn't sin. He fixed me up so I couldn't enjoy it. You see, the most miserable people I meet are not lost people. The most miserable people I meet are people who tell me they are Christians, but they have sin in their life, and they're trying to straddle the fence or live in the world and live in the church at the same time. They're miserable because they're trying to please their flesh, they're trying to please the world, and trying to figure out if God will accept a bargain. That's the most miserable people in the world. Why? Because if we're saved, we know what it's like to sense forgiveness. And then if we begin to live in sin again, we just mess the whole thing back up. John is writing to say, this is how you know you're saved, and this is what you need to do. The possibility of sin is there. I mean, he acknowledges that, that it is possible for us to sin, we will sin now, if anybody's ever told you they're not sinning they're lying which is a sin we will sin but for the believer sin is the exception not the rule that's the key now there's a twofold promise here first of all is for protection We have protection because of the person of Jesus Christ, because of who he is. He is our advocate, our lawyer. Our protection is not based on how sincere we are. Our protection is based on the righteousness of Christ. Not how good I am, but how good God is. That's my protection. It's all centered in Christ. And then there's that big word, propitiation, which means the atoning sacrifice. Now, we're going to get a little deeper in this as we go in this message, but John is not going to waste words. 1 John 1, 9, he's called us to holiness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we sin, I mean, he just jumps one verse and then the next, and if we sin, children, he's talking to Christians, and if we sin. Now, here's the problem. If sin wasn't a pleasure, it wouldn't be a problem. I mean, if it wasn't a pleasure, we wouldn't have a problem with sin. But sin entices us. It appeals to us. It lures us. But the problem with sin is, It promises what it cannot produce nothing that sin promises you can produce what it promises you with another woman with another man with another drink with another hit with another whatever it is it's never going to satisfy you you'll never be satisfied because sin is an addiction that has to have a cure and the only cure is the blood of Jesus Now, you and I that are saved that know Christ are saved in three tenses. Past, present, future. There was a point in my life when I was saved, but Jesus is saving me right now and he will save me at the end. I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. It is a continual Application of the blood of Jesus to our lives that He saves us at a point in time, but He keeps us saved until He gets us into eternity. Now, that's a whole lot better than trying to figure it out yourself. If you look in your notes in six verses, John sets up the entire earthly ministry of Jesus. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, who Jesus is. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, what He's doing. If I know who He is, if I understand what he's doing, then my view of sin is different. You see, I don't obey God because I have to. I don't obey God because I need to. As a believer, I obey God because I want to. Jesus said in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Alan Redpath, former pastor of the Moody Church, way back a long time ago, said the time lag between the moment of sinning and the moment of forsaking and confessing is a sure indicator of a true nature of a man's walk with God. See, this whole idea that when I was growing up, you know, everybody kind of lived like they wanted to and then you had a two-week revival and everybody got right and they stayed right for about a month. Then they lived like they wanted to. Then you had another revival and everybody got right. That is not New Testament Christianity. That is religious moralism that says, I'll get better for a while to ease my guilt. God did not save you to get better for a while to ease your guilt. God saved you to make you in fellowship with him that you could enjoy fellowship with him And not live with guilt all the time the Spirit convicts us Jesus is our advocate and the Father is the judge so let's look at God's desire chapter 2 verse 1 that you sin not it's an aorist tense in the in the Greek and it means to not commit a single act of sin that you sin not that you not commit a single act of sin you say well you know, I'm done, I'm through, I've blown it, I, comm- I, I sinned this morning. Now, we know that sin began in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned, and we sin by the same will because of the same depravity and the same fallen nature that Adam and Eve did. They had perfect fellowship with God, and it wasn't enough. So Satan came and enticed them. And they sinned now you would not if you're honest you would not expect God to lower his standards on sin so that you would feel better about your sin because any time you lower the standards whether it's in government or education the church or our understanding of Scripture Anytime you lower the standards, what you end up with is you've dug a deeper hole to get out of. God's not going to lower his standards. His will is that you sin not. Now, this is not a theology of perfectionism, that we become perfect and we never sin. He says, I'm writing these things. What's he writing? What he just referred to. If you sin, you confess it. All that he said in chapter 1, I'm writing these things that you sin not. Now just back up to chapter 1 for just a minute. Here's why we shouldn't sin. Here's why sin should be the exception rather than the rule. Verse 3, we have fellowship with God. Chapter 1 and verse 7, we walk in the light. Verse 7, his blood cleanses us. Verse 9, Forgiveness is provided. So the attitude should be, I don't want to sin. I don't want to be out of fellowship with the Father. I want to walk in communion and in fellowship with Christ. And the believer in fellowship with the Father is characterized by three truths. All of this is essential to the liberation of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, continual cleansing. Continual cleansing. We need to walk in continual cleansing. Now you say, well, that's that's impossible. No, it's not. If we confess, he is faithful to forgive. Immediate. I sin, I confess. I sin, I confess. I sin, God convicts me, I confess it. I don't let it linger. I don't let it fester. Now, those of you that are parents, just stay with me here for a minute. When your kids sin, you want them just wait about three months before you deal with it? They steal something from their siblings? If they lie to you, do you say, well, you know, I'm such a loving parent, you know, I'm going to let them go for about three months with no consequences? No, what you want is I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And when they do, it's over. There's cleansing. Continual cleansing, continual confession. Now, that doesn't mean you keep confessing the same sin over and over again that God has already forgiven you of. It means when you sin, you confess. You confess because you realize it's a sin against God. But thirdly, there's conquering sin. And those first to result in conquering sin, that sin is no longer master over us. Now, you ought to write this down somewhere and maybe write it in your Bible. Sin always ruins the life where it reigns. Sin always ruins the life where it reigns. When sin rules, the life is ruined because sin destroys us. Sin is what sent Jesus to the cross. Sin is why he had to die. And when we let sin reign in our life, it ruins us. And sin and living in sin is a denial of the power of the cross of Christ in our lives. God's desire is that you do not sin. Secondly, God's provision. Now, if God's desire is that you do not sin and the ideal is that we do not sin, experience says we will. Now, if you're sitting by somebody that you know, how many of you believe that person has committed a sin in the last week? Just raise your hand. Come on. now if you've committed a sin in the last week keep your hand up some of you haven't raised your hand I think you need to come preach (laughs) because you're perfect and you don't need Jesus hey I've sinned in the last week I sinned yesterday think it might have this morning But I have a father that I can confess it to the ideal is is that I wouldn't sin the ideal is is that we would live in such a way when we come in here next week and say this is the most incredible week of my life I, I've been tempted but I've not sinned but that's not going to happen not if you are of sound mind and not lying to yourself and that's what he says in chapter 1 we, we lie to others and we lie to ourselves and we end up lying to God. But if we do sin, now look at what he says, and if any man sins, now I know this doesn't mean anything to you, but it should. It's a second aorist subjective. And it means if someone commits a single act of sin. In other words, the reason this is worded this way is it's saying if a believer commits a sin, it is not saying if a believer is a habitual sinner that doesn't repent. That's a lifestyle issue. This is an incident issue. That's a lifestyle issue. A lifestyle of sin. If anyone commits an act of sin, we need to check our heart that sin is the exception not the rule, not the habit of our lives. That we keep short accounts with God. See, before we were saved, sin ruled. After salvation, sin should be an exception. And the closer and closer we get to Jesus, the less and less there should be a desire to sin because we want to be more like Jesus. For the believer, sin is present but it's not prominent. Now let let me, let me give you a little something here and don't take this where some people in our society would take it. When you read the letters of Paul, Paul argues like a man. He is logical, He outlines his points. He drives the nail into the board, through the board, and out the other side. Paul will argue from an apologetic standpoint to defend the faith. He argues like a man. Now, again, don't take this the way our culture is political correctness is interpreting kind of stuff. John argues like a woman, which means... I'm right I may not can prove every bit of it but I'm right and if you will go along with me you'll discover I'm right that's the way John argues a woman knows what she knows husbands how many amens can I get right here a woman knows what she knows it's intuitive And she knows that she knows it and she may not be able to prove it. My mother drove me crazy. (laughs) The weekends when I was out doing something wrong, she intuitively knew it. She'd say something before I went out or she'd say something when I got home or she'd say something the next morning. It was like, she was in the car with me drove me crazy she just knew it just intuitively he was just instinctive in her john never tries to argue he just knows it to be true well you say well well how did he just know it to be true remember he's the disciple whom jesus loved he was the closest of all the disciples to jesus and what he knew he knew not just by relationship with Jesus in being in that inner circle of disciples but he knew it intuitively because he had been so close to Jesus he knew the mind and heart of Christ and he had been there at the cross and he had been there at the resurrection there's no room in John's writing for situational ethics so what happens when we sin verse one we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, again, you probably don't care about what tense this is in the Greek, but it's a present active indicative, and you should care about that. You should care. In fact, if you don't know any Greek, you all just write that down, and you just say to somebody, you know that's a present active indicative in the Greek. And they say, how do you know that? I just know it. It's intuitive. <laughs> Here's what it means. It means that there is never a moment in time or in eternity when Jesus is not acting as an advocate. He's not occasionally an advocate. He's not just an advocate when you realize you need an advocate. He is eternally, every second of time, from beginning to end, the advocate with the Father on our behalf. Always advocating. Now, what is an advocate? Well, the simple word is he's a lawyer. He's a proxy. He stands before the court on behalf of the accused and pleads the case. He's a proxy. He speaks forward. He's a friend of the accused on behalf of the accused. He's Matlock. For those of you that are older, he's Perry Mason. I don't know who else he is. He's not one call, that's all. You don't need that kind of lawyer. You don't need a lawyer that's trying to make money. You need a lawyer that's pleading his blood. And he's pleading on your behalf. So look at it. Here's the contrast. Jesus is our advocate. Satan is our accuser. Jesus presents himself. Satan presents our sin. Somebody ought to say hallelujah. Jesus is our advocate. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Guess what? my advocate is stronger than my accuser. And Jesus presents himself. Satan presents our sin. The Holy Spirit is our advocate on earth. He convicts of sin and judgment and righteousness. Jesus is our advocate in heaven with the Father. Our advocate doesn't plead our innocence. He acknowledges our guilt and presents himself as the grounds for acquittal that the case is thrown out. Robert Murray McShane said, If I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. We say, Boy, I just wish I knew Jesus was praying for me. He is. Well, I can't hear it. Doesn't matter whether you can hear it or not, He is. Just take Him at His word. He's praying for you. Our heavenly advocate is in the courtroom of heaven. The devil is the plaintiff, He's the prosecutor. Jesus is the defense attorney, and God the Father is a judge, and we're on trial for our sin. Jesus is in heaven pleading His work on the cross. For you. Now that's important. When the devil accuses you, when the devil lays a guilt trip on you, can I give you a ad- piece of advice? Tell the devil to call your lawyer. Tell the devil, you have to take that up with my lawyer because my sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. And my lawyer knows the facts of this case, and you may be accusing me right now, and you may think you've got an advantage, but my father is going to overrule you. Ron Dunn said there are three reasons Jesus is a great lawyer, three of the greatest points I ever heard Ron give because of his relationship to the judge hey how would you like to go to court and your lawyer be the son of the judge all rise hey dad I think the prosecutor would go wait a minute well I, I we need to change this can't change it there's only one defense attorney and that's Jesus because it's a relationship with the Father. He's with the Father. That means face-to-face. It is a picture of equality. Jesus is not like the American legal system where he's down on the floor and the judge is on an elevated platform and he's pleading up. He is beside the judge on level ground pleading to because of who he is. Because of his relationship with the judge, he's the son. Because of his record with the court, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is righteous, he is pure, he is holy. He is pleading his fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that he is the Messiah. He didn't come to say, hey, I... Uh, Here's what the law says, but here's what I think. He is the law, and he's the fulfillment of the law, and every law that we've broken has been covered by his blood. So it's his record with the court. Folks, Jesus has never lost a case. Never. And because of his redemptive work, He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifices for our sins. Present tense, present tense, always and forever. Now, the word propitiation is only found in the New Testament here and in 1 John 4, 19. And it's a picture of the mercy seat of atonement. In the Old Testament, the mercy seat on the ark was where the blood was applied to cover the sins of the people. In the New Testament, the blood of Jesus is applied, and he has satisfied all the Father's requirements for sin to be forgiven. Not some, all. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now, here's what's good about Jesus He propitiates our sin as our advocate, and he himself is the propitiation. He himself is the atoning sacrifice. It's not baptism, it's not church membership, it's not good works. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So when you look at these verses, he's the sacrifice, and if you know your Old Testament, He's the sacrifice, but he's also the high priest that accepts the sacrifice. And the high priest offers himself as the atonement for sin. And God the Father says, that covers it, that settles it. It's finished, it's done. I have paid the price for sin. Jesus does not plead my innocence. He doesn't plead extenuating circumstances. He doesn't plead temporary insanity. He acknowledges my guilt and presents his blood as the price paid to cover my sin. Listen, here's what Jesus is doing for you and why you ought to get a little more happy about your faith and why you ought to walk in greater joy and greater victory. When the devil says you did this, and you did that, and you said this, and you said that, and you did, and you did, and he points, and he's the accuser of the brethren, and he goes into the presence of God and says, God, Michael Cat did this, 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 and this. Jesus steps in and says, Well, Satan, while you were out worrying about Michael Cat," I know some things about him that you don't know because you left him for a while and you went and messed with somebody else. And you're about to bring their name up and I know what you're about to bring up. In fact, I know things you don't know. And so he looks at the father and he says, Father, don't look at Michael. Look at the nail-scarred hands. Look at the wound in my side. Look at the piercings in my feet. I have paid the price so that Michael Capp can stand before you, forgiven. Now, do you want to keep living trying to figure it out? Or do you want to look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter, of our faith. I want to ask you to stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, can I tell you something? He died for you. He went to that cross for you. The Bible says there's none righteous, no not one. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can be saved today. The same Jesus that saved many of us can save you today, can change your life in a moment, can overhaul the direction of your life. He can do that today. And in just a moment, we're gonna sing the power of the cross again. And as we sing, I wanna invite you to step out and ask Christ to save you and to change your life well, oh, listen. I mean, I've been at this a long time, folks, and I've been here 29 and a half years. Some of you are still trying to work your way into making God happy. And you just not opened your arms and surrender and embrace the grace of God and the goodness of God and the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the father we don't have to go through a pope we don't have to go through a priest we don't have to go through somebody's ideas we go to the father and say father in the name of jesus cleanse me of this sin and jesus says it's done done let's sing it like we mean it respond to the gospel as you need to today And let's walk out of here clean before the Lord this morning.